Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Allison Schrager. Allison's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, where her research focuses on public finance, pensions, tax policy, labor markets, monetary policy, all things economic. She's written a number of interesting pieces for City Journal over the last several months, so we thought it would be a great time to invite her back on the podcast to talk about what's going on with the economy. As our listeners may recall, Allison is the author of a fascinating book that we talked about on a podcast a couple of years ago, An Economist Walks into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. You can follow her on Twitter at Allison Schrager. Allison, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, It's been, you know, three months now since the U.S. economy hit with this pandemic started going into lockdown. Over that period, 20 million people at least have lost their jobs. I'm wondering, you know, where where's your assessment? We're, we're seeing some positive indicators now as the lockdowns have eased. Uh, but where, where do you think the economy stands right at the moment and what steps have been taken uh, by the government to respond to the crisis? And, and what's your view of them? Well, I think we're going to learn a lot in the next two weeks. And because it said we're having these spikes in the Sun Belt and in the South. And this is going to be a big test of can we withstand spikes? Clearly in New York, it threatened our hospitals overrun. Tons of people died. So this is the test of can hospitals handle it? Will death rates remain relatively low? And if so, we'll learn, okay, we're going to live with this. People are going to get sick, but we can manage it. Or it's just going to be as bad as it was in New York, and we're going to have to sort of have prolonged shutdowns, and a lot of businesses are going to have to stay closed, and then uh, really rethink our policy response. Because if you look at our policy response, both monetary and fiscal policy, you know, they're crafted in like end of March, early April, and we thought, okay, we'll shut down the economy for a month or two. We just have to keep everything on pause. And, you know, you can pause the economy for a month or two and then reopen it. Like people have pointed out, we more or less pause the economy for two weeks around Christmas every year. But if we're actually going to be in this until there's a vaccine or herd immunity or whatever comes first, then I think we really have to start rethinking policy. And right now, I don't think anyone could really tell you what's necessary until we see how these new spikes play out. You're just looking at um, the, you know, these outbreaks in Texas and in California and Florida, you know, so far it does seem that the age of the people who are getting sick now is much younger, and so the death rate hasn't spiked. Um, but if if that does worsen, or if it starts putting enormous pressure on the hospital systems in these cities, that they, they they may go back towards some kind of lockdown. In other words, yeah, and not only that, we learned that if New York has another spike, we'll also have to go back into lockdown. The thing is, they haven't locked, they have only shut down a couple targeted industries right now. So if this works and this subsides and not that many people die or hospitals get overwhelmed, then I think we get a message of we can keep the economy open and live with this. And we haven't known that. That's been a big unknown. I think we went to sort of the most extreme policy stance we could, let's just shut down everything, not really knowing if that was truly necessary. And now we'll find out. What about the federal programs uh, that have been launched to? get us through this period of lockdown. Uh, What's your view of their um, efficacity so far? Well, I mean, the Fed policy, I guess, has been quite effective in that, you know, it's remarkable that the economy is such a disaster and has so much uncertainty. Yet financial markets are pretty uh, robust. 
mean, the stock market, you know, is in decent shape. I mean, it's down from the top of the year, but I mean, not as much as you'd expect. You know, corporate bond markets are apparently doing more issuing and have lower rates than in history. I mean, so they've definitely kept that market liquid and, you know, larger companies can definitely get credit um, provided they're um, well rated. Um, I think uh, in even small, a lot of small companies and a lot have gone out of business, but not as many as I would have expected. And I think because everyone's still expecting, you know, things to go back to normal sooner rather than later. Um, and I think policy was sort of predicated on that. I mean, nothing about the CARES Act, which would have been what we got from the fiscal side, which, you know, provided um, grants or loans to small businesses and extended unemployment insurance. I mean, this was all built for this to maybe last a couple months. So again, like the $600 extra payment for unemployment uh, expires at the end of this month. Um, so we have to, I think, really, as I said, and when we see how these spikes play out, we sort of now really recalibrate our tools and see, okay, how long is this going to last? And what sort of policies can we have that can sustain businesses as long as possible? In the meantime, not propping up like sort of zombie companies or having generous that are so benefits that are so generous that people don't go to work at all. Right. Because that could keep the unemployment rate artificially high. Speaking of the stock market, uh, you you recently wrote a, a very interesting little piece for us. Um, you know, we are living through this incredibly uh, risky moment in the economy, and you've got many millennials and and even younger cohorts using their time in quarantine to become day trade you know stock pickers. Um, all of the major online brokers have had this huge surge in the number of new accounts this year. As as you noted in your piece, part of this is due to, I think, Dave Dave Portnoy, who is uh, the founder of Barstool Sports, who's kind of reinvented himself as a self-proclaimed investment guru, um, you know, since the beginning of the crisis. What you know? What's your view of of this day trading, and and what can we learn from it? And is it really having any kind of impact on the market we're seeing right now? You know, I, I cut it from the original draft because it kind of meandered. But I find it interesting that so many people are so quick to assume that uh, I said a rel- in this grand scheme of financial markets, relatively small investors and not really that many of them uh, can have such a big impact on markets because it seems like. For the last couple of years, all we heard about was how index funds were taking over markets and there was no price discovery anymore. And small and like the average investor, even like a big, uh, you know, hedge fund who's an active manager couldn't move markets in the same way. Now, all of a sudden, it's a relatively small market. I think the whole sports betting market, which is what people suspect is now moved to financial markets, is only $155 billion, which isn't really that much. So it seems strange to me that people like a couple like months ago were saying, you know, index funds have ruined markets. There's no price discovery. But now assume that a small band of very small investors can completely alter stock market prices and even be responsible for all the volatility we're seeing. It doesn't make sense. I think what we could worry about is the sort of personal finances of these guys. I mean, these are people sitting at home playing with money. It's a very uncertain economy. Are they going to you know, most speculators, most day traders, you know, do lose money on markets. It's really hard to make money consistently with stock market speculation, especially when you're up against, you know, algorithms that can trade much faster than you. Um, so provided they don't lose that much money and this is money they can afford to lose, I think it could even be a good thing. I think we should be more engaged with financial markets. People should understand them and understand how hard it is to make money and but that investing is important. 
So, you know, there is a case that this could be a net positive and people will learn their lessons not to day trade options if they don't know what they're doing. And at the same time, and stock investing is a healthy thing and they should buy an index fund. Um, on another topic you've written about, you know, estates are looking to rebound from the lockdowns, from the, the effects of the pandemic. Uh, a lot of people are talking about infrastructure projects uh, as, as a great idea that, that we certainly do need new infrastructure investment. Um, and so state leaders are talking about this. The president has even uh, mentioned this as a possible uh, goal for this year. Um, you know, w- what's your view of infrastructure projects as a way to generate some economic growth? Well, I mean, like everyone wants a train to LaGuardia. I mean, I think everyone likes infrastructure in theory. And, you know, there's certainly some projects that are worth doing. But I think counting on infrastructure as a means is like our salvation. I I think it's very tempting to say this is the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression and infrastructure saved people from the Great Depression. And so I think I hear a lot of politicians going there. I think Boris Johnson as well is going there. So this is definitely all political stripes. Um, But really, um, if you look at the history of the Great Depression, that's not entirely clear that infrastructure was this great salvation. You know, it looks like, you know, first of all, they didn't have any sort of safety net going into the depression. So giving anyone a job to do anything would have, or giving money to do anything actually did a lot because there's no unemployment insurance, but it doesn't even look like it really, you know, the idea is with infrastructure spending is one, you get these great projects that boost economic growth because good highways facilitate growth. But most of it was, or a large share of it, was just paying people to do smaller things around uh, in local cows, and they were less skilled. Um, it was sort of like they put a dollar in, they got a dollar out. So it wasn't this these knock-on big effects. And in fact, it might have even slowed job creation because uh, there's evidence that people were reluctant to take non-government jobs, which they saw as less stable. So then the question is, is if it's worth it, is do these infrastructure projects actually support long-term growth? Like, Are we going to sort of all have, uh, you know, better internet access and better highways that will support growth in the future. I mean, people don't appreciate that construction has become a lot more skilled than it used to be. I mean, you can't, it was one thing to sort of ask a farmer to dig a hole, but now I think it's a bigger stretch to ask a laid off hotel concierge to build a high speed train. Right. A last question, Allison, the uh, pandemic, I think you'd agree, will have long-term consequences for the country's economic policy. One idea, though, that's gained a lot of traction grew out of the pandemic, a response, um, and this is, this is uh, again, shared across the political aisle, is this idea that of the supply chain when it comes to pharmaceuticals and medical supplies in particular. And you've, you've even had uh, Buy American uh, as, as an idea uh, being, you know, being broached in, in Washington. The statistic that's usually cited in favor of this kind of policy, that our medical supplies should be made in America, uh, is that 80% of the drugs in America come from China. And while this claim you note isn't accurate, you do note that we probably do need to make changes in how we source uh, and make drugs available. So could you describe the state of play over that argument and what your view is on the kind of buy American idea? Yeah, it, it's a strange argument for me, as I said, as someone who has a background in finance, just because when I think of risk mitigation, I think of diversification. So whether or not your supply is coming from one outside country or your own country, you're concentrating your risk. 
So this idea that if we make things domestically, we're somehow going to be safer, I just don't think is very accurate. Um, ideally, it would be diversified across several countries because, um, you know, something if we needed uh, an important drug and we we're only making it here and only have the capacity to make it here, uh, that would actually expose us to even more risk. So I think it's misguided, not to mention the fact that, you know, paying for drugs is already a huge issue, incredibly expensive, and said, uh, concentrating our supply chains here would make them more expensive. So, I mean, that's certainly an issue. But, I mean, that said, I mean, ideally you have freer markets. So um, there are distortions, regulatory distortions that put U.S. manufacturers at a disadvantage. So you can get rid of those. And that would certainly, you know, create align better incentives. But I think it would be a mistake to think that we should concentrate all of our drug production here. So the idea really is to apply the notion of diversification uh, from finance to the way we think about supply chain uh, issues and to make sure we're just not not fundamentally reliant on on one country, especially one like China, where we have a very fraught relationship. Exactly. Like I worry not just for drugs, but for all sorts of supply chains of all sorts of goods. Um, I think we learned the wrong lesson of thinking, oh, well, we should trade less because we're so dependent on China. Like I said, it's 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 worse, I guess, even, you know, to depend on one country for all of your goods. But I mean, with the diversification, you should depend on as many as possible. That way you're never or not depend on any one by being very well diversified. So, you know, if your relationship or something goes wrong in one country, you have a lot of different sources. Great. Thanks very much, Allison. Don't forget to check out Allison Schrager's work on City Journal's website www.city-journal.org. She's writing very regularly for us. Uh, we'll link to her author page and a few of her recent pieces in the description. You should, you should also check out the book I mentioned earlier. It's called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. It's received a lot of attention. It's a terrific book. You can find it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. You can follow Allison on Twitter at Allison Schrager. And you can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening and thanks very much, Allison, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.